Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Shares for beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorized reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. I knew the advantage to investors through micro-investing because all of a sudden, you don't need to worry about the price of stocks, how much money you have. You can just invest what you can afford. So if it's $5 a week, a month, whatever, you can start investing with that money. And uh, I think that's a massive game changer, especially for people who are just getting started because you don't need to save up $10,000 and then drop it in and then worry. It's You can start your investing journey sooner with a smaller amount of money. So there's obviously less to lose and, and a lot to gain in terms of education and understanding of how it all works. G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. Is there more to dads than bad jokes? If you're a dad, what do you want to leave behind for your kids? My guest today started an investing newsletter to leave notes for his kids so that they'd have a financial blueprint for the future. G'day, Tim. Morning, Phil. Great to be here. Appreciate uh, being included in some esteemed company and the great podcast you have. <laughs> Thanks very much. But like I was saying before, we want some ordinary guys like you to come on and um, talk about what they're doing, and it's great. Now, look, I, I came across you because I was um, uh, looking through a list of investing blogs, and yours was very interesting. I mean, I, I just like the idea of Dad Investor, and I should say at this point that you are Tim Ellis, and you write the Dad Investor blog. That's right. So my name's Tim Ellis. I'm I'm also a husband, a father, a, a digital professional, and an investor, as we um, are alluding to, and an author and creator of the website dadinvestor.com.au. So I started Dad Investor uh, a few years ago, uh, back after the birth of my second child, my daughter, um, and back then I was. I'd been investing for a bit of time, and it was sort of when I got the opportunity having. Uh, paternity leave, I, I sort of got into it again or reinvigorated my my passion for it. And I started really thinking about what kind of investor I wanted to be. And as it turned out, I thought, well, I've got to start writing this down because I've been doing it for a number of years. And it's only now that I've, I've caught on about what I think I should be doing and, and what actually makes more sense to me as an investor. So started making notes, started writing things down, and then I thought I'd just put them on a website and then I can share it with people. And, you know, instead of having all these same conversations with people again and again about investing, I can tell them, here's the article I wrote on how to get started. And that's how it all began. And it's, you're just a little bit different from, from the FIRE movement because, you know, we see so many people who are writing and blogging about financial independence, retire early, but your focus is mainly on investing, isn't it? That's right. And it's really about investing being part of your overarching financial well-being and life. So I don't necessarily you know, at least personally have targets that I want to hit in terms of numbers or retirement dates or size of portfolio. It's really just fine-tuning the process of being that investor so that you can live a bit more comfortably and be a bit more secure in your financial well-being. So how old were you when you first started getting in, interested in investing? Uh, it takes me back to when I got my first full-time job back 
when I was early 20s, 2021. 20, mm-hmm. um, and back there, obviously, the investing landscape was different. It was only sort of 15 or so years ago, but- um, Oh, GFC, investing yeah, right in the middle of the GFC. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it was a year before, so it might have been 2007 or something where I thought, you know, making full-time income, I'm making more money than I ever have before, albeit not- that big in comparison now, but I thought I've got to do a bit more with my money. So I thought, why not um, have a look at this stock market thing? And uh, back then it was all paperwork and picking stocks and online brokers were really hard to deal with. So it was a it was a completely different landscape, but it was definitely an experience and a journey. And having gone through that stage and the number of stages since sort of makes you appreciate how easy and sort of um, great the environment is now to invest in shares. Yeah, and it's amazing, isn't it, how much um, how many tools are available, but not only that, how many uh, investing blogs, podcasts and YouTube videos and um, uh, how, much, how many resources there are available for people now as well. So anyway, just what were your first investments like? What were you doing then? I had no idea what I was doing for starters. I, I didn't have an investor's mindset. It was just, I'll look at what's on the ASX you know, 200 or whatever and, and find some names that I like. And so I know a couple of them, I was tossing up between a couple of banks and back then it was Westpac and St. George. And I was, I was, I'm an Ari for a couple of months. Which one should I buy? They're both similar. They both seem the same. I don't really know how to deep dive into the fundamentals, but uh, in the end I went for Westpac. And then I think a week or two later, they announced they were merging anyway. So two for the price of better off investing in St. George because they got the uh, massive jump in share price. But that was my first lesson within you know a couple of weeks of uh, what the stock market can do. Um, so yeah, back early days, it was individual stocks, it was banks, and just stuff that I knew. So I thought I'd give that a go. What what could possibly go wrong? What are some of the things that you started learning about? What were you able to? Um, to bring to your investing knowledge at that stage? I mean, what were the first stages like, the steps and the ladders to learning about investing for you? Absolutely. So it's a very much an emotional journey. Um, As much as we we look at the numbers and the data and the fact that it's stocks and companies and underlying assets and holdings and things like that, it's very emotional, especially if you are younger and you're not making – significant amount of money that minimum investment at the asx is 500 dollars. so even 500 dollars as a 21 year old is sort of well i don't know what's going to happen with this money so it's very much a there's a bit of anxiety there's a bit of nervousness about putting your money into something that's a bit unknown and then the minute you buy it it goes down and i find every time i buy something it pretty much instantly goes down yeah what is day. that that's like a law of the universe isn't it's it? just it's just one of those unwritten rules that whenever you buy something it has to drop so even if it's gone up for days and weeks on end so for me it was really the emotions and then understanding what i am actually investing for so as much as you like to be putting money in and making money it's it's still a part of your financial life so that's still your money that you've earned and it's now in an investment but you've got to understand well what am i doing this for what's the ultimate aim is it just to put money in and hope that it does something or is it do I have a goal for this money and and that's su- some of the themes of what I try and write about as well there's there's more aspects to investing than just picking that stock there's you know there's emotion there's the aim of it there's the why and and a whole number uh, a number of factors beyond just what and you like a juicy dividend as well was that why you were looking at banks in those yeah, days yeah yeah well actually that that takes me into sort of this the second phase of my investing where I got started in um, moved to more index funds so I 
I moved on from trying to pick stocks and um, trying to find the next sort of resource, you know, mining stock that was going to boom. And I thought, what's this Vanguard thing? So this is sort of back when index funds weren't a thing or even ETFs. It was probably 10 plus years ago. And I thought, well, Vanguard's well-known overseas. I had a look at them in terms of their index fund options or their products. And I thought, well, everyone talks about these, at least those who have been investing for a while. A lot of famous investors talk about index funds. Um, It wasn't that common back then. So I thought I'd get started with Vanguard Australia and they had the option to invest in index funds. And and back then they only had a handful available and uh, I decided to pick the high dividend index fund back then. It's the equivalent of the VHY ETF now. So I thought that's a safe bet. So I started drip feed into that. That's the beauty of the index fund model with the, the unit trust system there where you can put money in at a lower cost on a regular basis. And I did that for a number of years and sort of continued on my journey watching that grow and, and change over time. Uh, did you participate in a, a DRIP, DRP, Dividend Reinvestment Plan? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the beauty of um, the index fund as well was that it was easy to set up you know, dividend reinvestments and you know, me being at the stage it was, I didn't need an income taken out. So I just reinvested that money. And back then it was, you know, you'd be paid in, yeah, additional investments, which is what I did on a regular basis. And so over time, I just slowly watched that grow over a number of years in the old traditional index fund. Do you still own that ETF? No, I actually got out of that a couple of years ago, and that was more for simplicity, but I found it a great vehicle over a number of years, um, in particular because it was one of the only ways you could invest a smaller amount of money. You didn't have to cover the exact cost of the share. You can just invest based on how much you had available. And the minimum of a time was $100 per transfer. So that was a great opportunity for me as a younger person to invest a small amount, but more regularly. Um, so I don't have to build up and wait to have that $500 to drop into the ASX. And now that you've got shitloads of money, you can. Yep. Money everywhere. So uh, it doesn't matter. You know, I pick and choose how much I want to put in. So um, no, it did, uh, that, that brings me to another point though. It does get very messy after, um, after a few years of investing. While it's clean cut picking stocks and one index fund, it can get messy. So like I said, I've been trying to simplify, uh, my investments. So it's not all over the place and easy to understand. Do you still invest in individual shares? I do. So I do have what uh, is considered the, the core slash satellite approach to an investor's portfolio where I have that core proponent of it being made up of those passive type ETFs. And that's 80, 85% of my overall uh, share portfolio. And so they're the mainstream type ETFs that you see people invest in. And then I have the satellite part of my portfolio, which is made up of, yeah, individual stocks, volatile cryptocurrencies, some leveraged ETFs, being who I am, being the sort of DIY investor that I that I aim to be, I, I find that I need that portion of my portfolio in something that I can be a bit more active in because as much as it's obvious to just invest in a you know ETF and something simple and, and, and boring, I still want to try and have a bit of fun. And so for me, it's the core portfolio, part of the portfolio makes up the safe, secure, wealth building part of it over time. And then the satellite is the fun, make as much money as possible, see what you can do and uh, go wild with whatever you feel like. So that's how I break up my investing. There's there's two different sort of tiers to it. 
So what are some of the kind of individual shares that you look to invest in and what's the reasoning behind? What's the your methodology for getting into those ones? I'm the, I'm no pro. I'm definitely an amateur at this, but you know I have been doing it for a number of years. So I, I skip back and forth around how I feel that I should invest. So I know um, you talk to the value investors where they, you know, look for undervalued companies that are that are at a good price and looking to uh, grow um, quite significantly. So I do spend a bit of time valuating companies, looking at them, but then also look at different factors. So one I've done recently is looked at the momentum type factor where it's it's less about the companies or the underlying companies performance and it's more around the momentum that uh, that any one given stock or two stocks is is getting on the of the stock market and any one at a moment so you look at moving averages and things like that to say well what's the hot stock of the moment and so you know recently you know a lot of those tech stocks have been given a, a decent ride so you look at them and go well irrespective of what the underlying company is doing this is a hot stock so maybe we'll hop onto that and see how we go so frankly as well i just get ideas based off what i read so i read articles i I read forums facebook groups see what people are talking about and just sort of generate concepts of what might be a, a good idea and do some research and see how i go with that so it's a bit of a sandpit for me the old satellite portfolio but um yeah, I have good fun with it and it keeps me busy. So I'm not affecting everything else in my, you know, sort of financial life. Yeah. That's interesting. So you're using a bit of technical analysis. I mean, you're just looking at moving averages. Is that the kind of thing that you use to identify momentum? Yeah, moving averages. So 50 day moving averages, uh, 200 days, see where they sort of line up and see the differences. And, and it's a bit hard without sort of pointing to charts and, and showing you how it all works. But this might be an article I put together and throw on the website because I love sort of explaining what I do. But um, looking at momentum factor type stocks, it's all about what they've been doing on the stock market and, and how their price is tracking over a certain periods of time and the different indicators of the stock market in terms of volatility, highs, lows, overweighted, underweighted and things like that. So just little indicators that you look at and, and combined, you go, well, this might be a good option for me. So keeps me busy, but there's, there's no guarantee that what I'm doing is is going to come into place. Sometimes I have good days, I have good bad days, good months, bad months. So um, that's just the name of the game, though. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Super is one of the most important investments you'll ever make. But how do you know if you're in the best fund for your situation? Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. Well, it sounds like you've really taken to it and you really have a passion for it. And that, that, I always quote other guests. And one of my other guests once said, you can't teach passion. And you obviously do have a passion for what you're doing. Yeah. And you're enjoying yourself. And the people that do make money in the market actually enjoy the process. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people... Uh, get nervous about investing because I think the underlying reason is they don't actually know what they're doing it for. And so for me, it was 
I, you know, I've talked about the history of it and tried it out. And then the more I'm a numbers kind of guy, and that's just a characteristic of me being sort of, you know, a problem solver, a numbers guy. And so maybe that suits, you know, uh, uh, the investing that I'm talking about. So I do find it fun. And, and you know, it's good to make money. Like it's good to, to turn on, open up your broker and go, oh, your stocks, stocks jumped up, um, you know, 10% over the last week and stuff like that. So it feels like you're accomplishing something. So irrespective of, the actual dollars in that are coming in, it sort of feels good to to do some work and get rewarded for it. So, with the core part of your portfolio, describe that for us. Is it um, Australian, or are you in the US as well, or the rest of the world? Yep. So, at the moment, my core portfolio is just the one ETF. It's an ASX ETF called IOO, which is the iShares Global One Hundred ETF. And for me, I find that's just the best for my situation, my core, my my safety, my security. To me, if we want to unpack it a bit more, it's a hundred of the best shares in the world. And for me, that's a great number. It's not too many, it's not too light. And we've, you know, I know on your podcast you've talked about diversification, over diversification before. So I know a lot of ETFs can hold thousands of companies within them. So I find a hundred within an ETF is a great number to have diversified. It's not over the top. And there's some great companies within there that are truly global. And I find at any given time, you just want to hold a hundred of the best. So for me, that's just seems like a, it's got a good track record. It's got good liquidity, good everything. And it's just one of the better ETFs that I've found. And of course, this is not a recommendation for anyone to buy it. Do your own research, get a financial advisor and all of that. But if, just to, to explore it, is it actively managed? Like, do those 100 stocks change over time and are they equal weighted? Can you dive a little deeper into that? Yep. So the way the, the Global 100 ETF tracks an index, which is the it's an S&P tracked global ETF. And so what that includes is 100 of the truly global companies. And by that, I mean, the company has to have revenues across the world. So for example, you need to have 30% of your revenue come from the Asian region, 30% of your revenue come from uh, Europe and and at least 30% come from America. So you have to have a truly global company. So think of the biggest, you know, players in the world really. You've got the Apples, you've got Amazon, you've got Nestle and those types that that are spread everywhere. So wherever you go in the world, a company within the top 100 is going to be well known. They're not equally weighted. They're weighted by size. So uh, they've got the, the biggest companies in the world will take up the biggest weightings of that portfolio. So the top 10 make up, I think, just over a quarter of that uh, portfolio. So you've got, like I said, the Apples, the Amazons, BHPs in there um, as well. So I think there's a bit of a couple of Australian companies in there as well. So you've got 100 pretty strong large cap companies and they would just interchange based off their market cap and their ability to be global. So you'll find companies like Tesla are not within the global 100 and that's purely just due to their revenues across the world not matching up with what the index sets. So I do have a, a, an article explaining a bit more on this ETF and why and all those parameters about why I chose it. But for me, it was just uh, a bit more niche than just saying this is a total market covering cap but also it's diversified without being over the top and including too many companies. Oh, that's great. We'll put a link in the blog post to the article as well or reproduce it or something like that. So you're also very interested in micro-investing because that's something that's changed in your time as being an investor, that now you can start with five bucks. Absolutely. And I think micro-investing or for me, fractional investing has been a massive game changer because it changes 
the ability for you to invest from being on the stock market's terms to being on the investor's terms. So previously, or you still need $500 to start investing in an ASX share and you need to match the value of your investment with the the number of shares and the value of those shares. So if you wanted to buy a $1,000 share, you needed $1,000. But micro-investing changes that in that you don't need to have that much money to invest. You can buy a fraction of the share. So if you wanted to buy a $1,000 share and you only had $100, you just buy 10% of that share. And that's how the micro-investing or the fractional investing works. And and for me, day one, when the tools like Raise and that came out, I was on them because I knew the advantage to investors through micro-investing because all of a sudden, you don't need to worry about the price of stocks, how much money you have. You can just invest what you can afford. So if it's $5 a week, a month, whatever, you can start investing with that money. And uh, I think that's a massive game changer, especially for people who are just getting started because you don't need to save up $10,000 and then drop it in and then worry. It's You can start your investing journey sooner with a smaller amount of money. So there's obviously less to lose and, and a lot to gain in terms of education and understanding of how it all works. And that can be part of the education process as well for investors, that they they can start with very minimal risk um, and use that as a starting point to start learning about the landscape. Absolutely. And a lot of first-time investors get nervous because they think they have to put a large amount of money in mm. and into something that they don't know and then just wait and see what happens. But I think with these new tools and, and micro-investing in particular becoming more prominent and available to us it's such a great opportunity for people to start like you said five dollars is all you need to get going and yes you can look at the numbers and work out the fees and the costs and stuff like that but until you have some skin in the game as investor you don't actually know what to expect you can you can build it up and you can be as nervous as you want but until you get started you don't actually know what's going to happen but the best way i found is to actually be in the market and be in the game and go well this is what investing is really like what's my next move after that so for a lot of first-time investing, that first step is so difficult, but now the barriers to entry are just being pulled down so that you just don't need the significant um, amount of money to get started. You like to write about famous investors and what you've learned from them. Who are some of your favourites and what have they taught you? Look, I don't have any one famous investor. I don't follow anyone religiously like that, but I do appreciate the wisdom that comes from a number of uh, the more prominent ones that we we see and read about. I will make one point about them, though, is that they have one thing in common, is and that's they've done it for a long time. Every single investor that I read about or hear about has done investing for a long time, and that just paints the picture that while we can listen to the Buffets and the um, the barefoot investors and you know all the the Peter Lynch's of the world and stuff talk about what they invest in, how they build portfolios. I think you just got to look at them and go, these people have been doing their craft for such a long time, and that's so important to investing. So, yeah, look for me, I've mentioned those names. Peter Lynch is a great one. I think he has some great wisdom locally as well. Peter Thornhill is a great um, individual. I went and watched him speak uh, in person a few years ago and he gives a great perspective on investing for income and he's got a book as well. I think um, that's a fantastic read. So for me, it's I just love hearing perspectives from people who have done things for a long time. So, you know, you've got the famous overseas investors, as obviously um, there's some local people here that have some great uh, insights. But I think the common theme is listening to people who have done the same thing 
and effectively for a long period of time um, is a great way to build up your understanding of investing and your um, education as well. And what about surrounding yourself with a good network? What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, so for me, I'm someone that people come and talk to about money. So it's not to say I'm some kind of guru or anything, but people just know I'm into investing. I have a, you know, I have this site that I write about investing. So for me, a lot of people come to me and just don't have anyone else to talk about in terms of money or investing or numbers and things like that. And so for me, I encourage people to really go and, and build a solid group of people where you can, it's not always possible, but where you can try and find some like-minded people who are interested in not necessarily money, but just sort of, you know, that wealth building concept where you're looking to, to do something more with your money. And it, and it goes not just for investing, but a lot of many aspects of your life where you are the, the average of the people around you, aren't you? So for me, I make sure that, you know, I have, I'm having conversations with friends and family about things and, and having more of them with the right people. So. Yeah, I think it's just gravitating to the people who are going to be good for you in terms of your financial life is a good way to learn a lot as well. So whether that be in person or online or people you follow or read about or podcasts you listen to, if you build a habit of just listening and, and understanding perspectives of people you want to grow with, then I think you'll put yourself in a good place as well. But don't you find that you get that position where you become a, a kind of a, a, a minor authority? I guess we're both minor authorities in our own way. Yep, and all that people want to do is they want to come up and say, what do you think about blah, blah, blah? Oh, I love this question. I love it when people come up to me and say, oh, have you got an investing tip? What should I invest in? And, and they, they come up to me, they rub their hands. Oh, this guy knows how to invest. And, and they, they look at me and they go, oh, have you got an investing tip? And I go, and I know exactly how to answer this question. And they rub in their hands going, oh, he's going to tell me to invest in Netflix or, or Nvidia and, and, you know, it's going to take off. And I tell them, I go, I'll give you two bits of advice. Invest more often and invest more money. And they look at me and they go, what do you mean? I said, well, how much money do you invest in at the moment? And they go, oh, I put $1,000 in an ETF three years ago and it's sort of done something and I can't remember. I don't, it was with a broker. I don't even know the name anymore. I said, well, I tell them it's, look, it's not about what you're investing in. You, people just constantly chase they think the investor's job is to chase the best and find the best investor and to look for the next best option. But the reality is, is as an investor, it's your job to build up the habits, build up the craft or investing so that you can repeatedly put yourself in a better position by repeatedly doing the same tasks and actions. And they are investing more money and investing more often when you can. And so I find most of my success through my investing journey is because I've done it for such a long time and because I've been, you know, repeating the same things over and over again. It's not worrying about what I invest in. It's not trying to find a cryptocurrency that's unknown that's going to beat someone else because it's really about those habits that form your investing journey. I'm a bit more of a hard taskmaster in that when I, I get that sort of question. Um, yeah. I had an uncle who was a bookmaker and every year I'd say, what should I put my money on in the Melbourne Cup? And he'd say, keep your money in your pocket. <laughs> and I, I just say to people, if you're going to ask that question, keep your money in your pocket. You've got to go and learn. You've got to invest in learning yourself, don't you? And that's what it comes down to. You've got to learn and actually know just even a little bit about what you're doing. Absolutely. And people love shiny things. And so they love the, the products. They love 
the investments, the stocks, the cryptocurrencies, the new ETFs, the tools, the platforms. They love that stuff. And so that's, in a way, the most popular stuff that people find on my website. And that's the stuff that they read the most. But I try and gravitate them towards the topic of investing, becoming an investor, because it's not about investing in shares. That's the task. The craft is becoming an investor and it's made up of so many things and it's made up of you determining not just what to invest in, but what not to invest in and when to invest and when not to invest. And so, you know, people don't like to hear that you shouldn't be doing anything, you know, especially with, you know, which horse to pick. So for me to tell people that they should be building habits is is hard to digest because, you know, it's something that they need to put time into. You can't just magically pick a stock and just become a millionaire overnight because it doesn't work like that. So it's very much a behavioral thing. And and while it's not as flashy as talking about products, it's something that's so important and probably underserved in terms of what we see and read about a lot. I found you on the share site site, which was about the, um, their uh, favorite investing blogs. And what's your thoughts on benchmarking? Because for me to suddenly see it starkly in there, what you're trying to do compared to if you just went into a, like we've been talking about an index ETF and it can be so deflating when you see, if I just put my money just in this thing and just sat back and didn't do anything, I would have been so much better off. Yeah. So how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. ShareSite's a great tool. I've been a user of ShareSite for a number of years. It's got that great feature where you can benchmark against a common ETF or, um, or fund and, and, and see how your portfolio performs in comparison. So for me, I track at the moment against the S&P 500. So it's the ETF IVV. That's been fairly decent the last five or 10 years. And so that in many aspects does overshadow my portfolio performance. And you're right, it is deflating when you put in so much work and effort in towards investing. And then you look at something like the S&P 500, one of the cheapest ETFs you can get is doing a better job at the, at you, than you. And while it is sort of deflating to look at it, it's also a great reminder for me and for many investors that the market does not care how much effort you're putting in. So it doesn't matter how much time or effort you're putting into researching stocks, finding the cheapest or most actively managed ETF. The market will do its own thing. You're just there for the ride. So it's it, it doesn't really impact your investing results how much effort you put in it might you might like to think that but for me at least more effort has not (laughs) has not turned into more results i have fun with it but for the most part like that talked about the core part of the portfolio that just sits there and does nothing and it builds me wealth without me having to do anything and so that is the benchmark really just that average return that you're looking to achieve over time is something that you can get without putting any effort into it at all. So there's a lot of noise out there, but the reality is it doesn't matter because the market keeps moving and you can grab those average returns. That's something that in the course of making this podcast, which I found quite interesting, is that we all talk about ETFs and ETFs loom large in all our investing strategies. But when you look at it against managed funds, it's tiny in comparison to the amount of money that's sloshing around in managed funds. That's right. And that's because people like to think that more effort is more valuable. And especially when it comes to financial advice, financial advisors, funds, managed funds, active funds, people 
in all aspects of life, look at effort and think that is value. It takes, you know, like a, you go and make a, get a coffee made by a barista and you think because they heated up the milk and because they cranked the coffee machine, that's better than you pressing a button and getting a coffee. So you're, you value that coffee higher because someone's handmade it. And similar when it comes to all those, um, you know, financial professionals, people believe that because someone's sitting at a desk or wherever a number of hours a week, they're going to get a, that they value that higher. And so they're willing to pay for that. And that's, look, I'm going to say it's unfortunate, but that's just our nature and that we value people putting in effort and we're willing to pay for it. So mm-hmm. it's up to you, I guess, as an investor, as an individual to see what your comfort level is. Are you willing to pay for that kind of service? There's options there we don't need to anymore, obviously, through ETFs and, and passive type uh, investments or low cost investments. So that's just part of what you what you come across as an investor and, and you find you need to make decisions on what you pay for and what you don't. What you're saying brings me to the point about how few financial advisors there are in Australia and how expensive they are. And presumably someone who's listening to this podcast or going to your blog has started to take an interest in this, which is great. <laughs> we, we congratulate you that you're taking an interest. But mm. it really is becoming a necessity nowadays because financial advice, um, uncompromised financial advice is beyond most people's financial reach. Absolutely. And I, I, I was listening to that podcast where you, where you talk about sort of the gap in financial advice or advisors and how we're losing the, them to the industry. And it's unfortunate. But I think there's also an opportunity for advice or the position of advice to be, to be rebuilt or reimagined because I think there's a bit of a misconception in terms of what people believe they get when it comes to financial advice. And and a lot of people I have conversations with or get in touch with me through my site aren't necessarily there for a full review of their finances. They're not looking for that statement of advice, that big document of needing to do everything to everything in their financial arsenal. It's really about people wanting help making their next decision. Um, so people come to go, I just got this huge inheritance or I just sold my house or I've just paid it off. What do I do next? So I think there's opportunity for the financial advice industry as a whole to tailor or cater more towards what people are looking for because I think it's been um, up until recently very much a you go to a financial advisor, you get it all mapped out, you get the statement of advice and that's how it works. So there's a, I feel like there's a sliding scale of actually what people need and want. And so, look, they're willing to pay, but they're not looking willing to pay for things that they don't want. So they don't need their superannuation reviewed or their mortgage reviewed or what they're doing with their money. It's just, it's just one aspect of their finances that they need help with. So I think, yeah, there is that opportunity for the financial advice industry to cater to different behaviours or different needs of people who are looking for it. But who's going to deliver that? I'm not sure. So, Tim, how can listeners find out more about you? Yep. So, I've got a website, as we've talked about, dadinvestor.com.au. I've got plenty of articles there on my investing journey, a few how-to guides as well. I've got a newsletter, an email newsletter. You can sign up where I send out some more information as well. I don't have social media. What's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) I don't post anything to social media. I do have YouTube. I have a few videos up there. You'll find them in my articles anyway, Um, but it's mostly through my website. Tim Ellis, thanks very much for joining me today. Appreciate it, Phil. 
Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.